Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getzen. Today, we begin our look at how German diplomat and architect Hermann Muthesius embraced the consequences of the Industrial Revolution to propel architecture and design into a 20th century that would, in a manner far different from all of human history before it, conceive of innovation as a national imperative. This is the fifth installment of our podcast, and we would like to thank everyone who has downloaded us, signed on for memberships, and sent us feedback. Astute listener Mark pointed out an important detail about last week's episode. When we quoted Virginia Woolf speaking of a change in human character by way of a cook in the Georgian era, that may have sounded oddly anachronistic to some of you, since Georgian usually refers to the collective reigns of the Hanoverian kings George I through IV and William IV, spanning from 1714 to 1837. Though not many people think of the years 1911 to 1936 as Georgian, they corresponded to the reign of Edward's son, King George V. Living at the time, Wolfe could not have had the ominous knowledge to call the era the interwar period, as we do today. Now, while all the school books rightly tell us that the Industrial Revolution was a child of that first Georgian era, in echo of Loos's straggling model of historical development, it would take some time for what began as steam engines pumping water out of flooded mines to affect most people's daily lives. In 1812, Napoleon's troops went to war not very much differently than those under Louis XIV. 19th century peasants farmed and lived as they had for millennia with some of the most impactful changes in agriculture dating from the late Middle Ages and being in the order of horseshoes, stirrups, and crop rotation. Having set aside the structurally reckless experiment with the innovation of load-calculated engineering for Paris's Saint-Geneviève, stonemasons were building churches much the same way as Gothic cathedrals had been raised with craft techniques that arguably had their roots in the Egyptian and Mesopotamian Bronze Age. Industrialization began slowly and subtly, early on with water wheels in highland rivers, later with steam power in suburban factories. Mining was revolutionized. Textile production was transformed, first in Britain and then the Americas, Prevailing patterns of production that had lasted centuries were left behind. Today, when we live in a world where even a perceived slackening in the pace of innovation will send Wall Street into a bearish mood, it is easy for us to forget that up until the late 1800s, innovation was synonymous with risk. Have a new idea for building a longer, taller bridge? Gamble some lives in testing it. Suspect you can build a faster ship. You'd better buy many pounds worth of insurance for the maiden voyage, or risk your own pound of flesh. Putting up a real skyscraper of a bell tower in Pisa? Keep a level head, and don't build much above five floors until structural steel is invented. For thousands of years, the pattern of human achievement 
had been to imitate and very gradually develop the successful models of the past. Though the entire Renaissance is now seen as a modern break, pulling away from the Middle Ages, what its founding scholars loved about it first was not what was new, but what was old. They were looking into history to cherry-pick the best of what had worked in the past, which for the Renaissance meant classical Rome. The myth of Babel is an even earlier and more enduring condemnation of innovative thought. When the people of the story replaced stone with dried mud brick and mortar with bitumen, they could build higher, but they became so drunk with their technological prowess that they were punished with divine destruction. Lest this seem limited as a quaint religious reference, Louis XV's Parisian church of Saint-Genevieve, which we mentioned earlier, replaced arches with iron bar reinforcement, Jacques Germain Soufflot's astonishing anticipation of structural concrete. But they were rewarded with cracks in the building and a decade in construction delays and cost overrun. Before the Industrial Revolution, the story of Babel was par for the course when it came to disruptive innovation. But for whatever confluence of history, geology, and geography, the Scottish Enlightenment changed that. The north of Great Britain experienced a series of technological explosions, many of them literal, that propelled their empire into an even loftier position of global domination. For the first time in human history, it became more dangerous to cling to tradition than to flout it. In the early to mid-19th century, Germany, or more accurately at the time, the Germanies, were not a state and barely a loose confederation. The autonomous kingdoms pursued their own policies but looked with interest further west. They had recently been under the military hegemony of Napoleonic France, and now independent, saw victorious Great Britain rising to an unchallenged seat as a global superpower. Central to this success was the economic support of industrial production. Areas of the Germanies began to imitate British methods and to catch up in industry. Ties between the cultures were close, with the German-descended Queen Victoria marrying Prince Albert von Sachse-Coburg und Gotha. The German Prince Consort of England was instrumental in creating 1851's Grand Exposition in London's Hyde Park, the first World's Fair of Industrial Goods. Leading up to that milestone, the years 1841-50 saw a German iron production of 196,400 tons. The output for 1861-70 was 521% larger, and growing at a pace much faster than even Britain's iron output and industrial development, the growth rate for which was already beginning to slow and mature. With German political unification completed in 1871, the potential for a coordinated effort of modern industrial policy was immense. It was within this context that Hermann Muthesius rose to prominence. He was born in 1861 in Groß Neuhausen, just north of Weimar in central Germany. 
Considering his subsequent career, it is an amusing coincidence that the name of his hometown stands for Big New Houses. Emulating the English fashion of every working class and above family desiring a spacious, country-style home would be a focus of his later career, in a turn that would be reflected in his writings and his business strategy. He started by studying philosophy and art history at the University of Berlin, a background that he very quickly took to architecture. Counterintuitively, because German culture at the time would have considered it a step down, he left the University of Berlin and enrolled at the nearby Charlottenburg Technical College in 1883 while apprenticing in the office of Paul Vallot the architect of the original Reichstag building. The new legislature housed an upstart government in an upstart empire. The Kaiser was busy insisting that Germany was in great peril of losing out to other nations if it did not pursue a colonial policy. And Matasius went right around the world with the ambitions of the new empire, carving out spheres of influence. As Germany had imitated British industrial policy, the Japanese, in the aggressively modernizing Meiji period, looked to German government and industry as models. Between 1887 and 1891, Motesius worked for a German construction firm in Tokyo. There he completed his first building, a Gothic Revival church. Following this, he made a tour of Asia, and unlike the better part of Europe, he was likely not very surprised when the Japanese obliterated the Russian forces in 1905. The very Russian army that had once withstood the methods of Napoleon was now woefully obsolete. A nation that had been innovating on industrial capacity for decades went to war against an empire that would lash Ukrainian peasants to plows when horses were scarce, and the results were unambiguous. The lesson was doubtless learned by Mutasius long before the Russo-Japanese War drove it home to the European public. Following his further travels in Asia, the German government put Mutasius at the head of the Prussian Ministry of Public Works and allowed him a stipend to study in Italy. In 1896, his life took a decisive turn that would shape the rest of his career. Participating in the ongoing traditions of Anglo-German collaboration that Prince Albert had established decades prior, Mutasius was appointed cultural attaché at the German embassy in London. His main task was to study and report on the English way of life. And if this sounds a bit suspicious to you, it was. To many. As we shall soon see, the allegations about the nature of his diplomatic work would later come calling. The result of his time in England was a three-volume work published between 1904 and 1905, Das Englische Haus, an examination of British material culture. In these tomes, Mutasius lucidly described how William Morris and a small group of intellectually focused individuals began the arts and crafts movement and eventually developed it into a self-sustaining economic entity that survived for some time. He remarked on how artistic sensibilities were applied to craft production. Anticipating perspectives that would later be applied at the Bauhaus, Mutasius observed how, in the English movement, 
almost as if starting from zero, the furnishings were created from the rough. This early praise would resonate in his later assertion that form lent to material is what brings culture out of coarseness. He then visited Glasgow, where he became acquainted with the groundbreaking work of Charles Rennie Mackintosh. Mackintosh himself had visited Vienna in 1900, where he was hailed as a design pioneer for his marriage of craftwork and industry. Earlier thinkers like Morris and Ruskin had opposed craft to and against industry, whilst maintaining the traditional ideas that innovation was more disruptive than helpful and seeking to soften the harsh impact of the Industrial Revolution by preserving craft economies. Mackintosh was the beginning of a trend that would stand such ideology on its head and use craft sensibility to push industry forward. As such, he was invited to start an international art and design school in Vienna, but declined and set it up in his native Scotland instead. Despite the brevity of his Austrian visit, his influence transformed careers such as that of Otto Wagner, and the Viennese responded to the new ideas by creating the series of workshops that would form the Wiener Werkstätte. Mutesius took note of both of these instances and would later use his influence in government and industry to take the concept of a craft school to levels unforeseen, though not without first facing some resistance. This is where we return to how Mutesius's diplomatic mission to observe the English might sound rather like an epithet for espionage. Just as now, there are entire websites dedicated to rumors in the electronics industry and leaks from software companies snowball and then avalanche into enormous lawsuits. In Mutasius's time, observing how a factory was laid out, what the composition for the latest light bulb filaments might be, or learning of a gadget that could increase the efficiency of coal gasification were trade secrets worth millions. Mutasius had made such a name for himself in Germany for observing the English and subsequently criticizing German procedures that neither the UK nor the German Empire trusted that he was not selling secrets. By 1907, he had returned to Germany, started a private architectural practice, and was advising the Prussian government on how to reform art and design education. In that year, he was accused by the Fachverband für die Wirtschaftlichen Interessen des Kunstgewerbes, Association for the Economic Interests of the Arts and Crafts, of unduly criticizing the quality of German industrial goods. The implication was that he was a spy or at least leaking patents. While the case against him was hardly unanimous and never led to serious charges, it did lead to one of the great watersheds in 20th century architectural history. In a move worthy of Caesar's legions being attacked by the Roman Senate, those in the Fachverband who were sympathetic to Mutasius publicly resigned from the organization and promptly formed a new and more powerful one under the leadership of the supposed spy. Though not widely discussed today outside of architectural circles, the Deutscher Werkbund, as this association was called, 
was a major contributor to making the world we live in today the way it is. For one, it introduced and developed the very notion and practice of industrial design. If you happen to be listening to this podcast on a device created by Johnny Ive, realize that his whole career description is the direct outgrowth of what the Werkbund intended and built. Mutesius was the first to bring artists, people like Peter Behrens, Theodor Fischer, Heinrich Tessenov, and Josef Hoffmann, to corporations with the aim of enriching people's lives. As a direct result of the Werkbund's efforts, Dresden got a garden city suburb, and entire areas of Berlin were reimagined and rebuilt. But the Werkbund did not stop there. The strains of Gesamtkunstwerk, what Wagner had called total art, rang through their work. The organization's motto was, after all, vom Sofakissen zum Städtebau, from sofa pillows to city building. They were not about to be held back by older prejudices on the limits of art or industry. In 1920, two years after women in Germany got the right to vote, and while women at the Bauhaus were still relegated to the kitchen to make rugs and tableware, designer Lili Reich became director of the Werkbund. In the pre-war years, Peter Behrens had designed houses and office buildings, but due to the Werkbund's influence, he was also made head of industrial design at AEG, the German branch of General Electric, where he redesigned everything from tea kettles to the corporate logo. If today you see an advertisement for a piece of electronics with nothing but a white background, the company branding, and the name of the designer, it was Mutasius's organization who first brought this mode of design, production, and marketing, all fitting together, into our lives. This did not, of course, come out of nowhere. Good design, good strategy, and good business might seem obvious in retrospect, but at the time, the Werkbund was a very controversial departure. Furthermore, its project stemmed directly from core philosophical principles that Mutasius had worked out through his study of art history. This was one of those extraordinary moments where philosophy did change the world, and we live in its palpable trace even today. A decisive turning point came in 1911, when the organization was split into two camps. Some argued that the most important aspect in design was the individual expression of the designer, while Mutasius felt that the designer's job was not chiefly one of expression, but of discovery. Out of a long philosophical tradition, he claimed that each object was the expression of a type, that for each use case, there was an ideal form that already existed to fill the gap. It was the task of the designer to discover that form, fill that need, and furthermore, do so in a way that would lift us out of chaos. At the 1911 Annual Congress of the Deutscher Werkbund, Mutasius gave a speech that would launch the ambitions of figures such as Walter Grofius, Mies van der Rohe, and Le Corbusier, 
regardless of whether they agreed or disagreed with it. Standing before the assembly, Matasius charged that here remains before us as our goal a much greater and more important task right before our eyes to awaken once more an understanding for form and the revival of architectonic sensibilities. Formlessness is synonymous with Unkultur. A line in the sand was drawn, and sides were chosen. Stay tuned next week as we conclude our in-depth analysis of the speech that kick-started modern architecture as we know it. Thank you for listening.